This is Unpacking Design, a podcast to help designers of all kinds better themselves in career, business, and life. Join me, Michael Valley, and my co-host, Tim Ong, as we unpack the problems designers face every day. Welcome to Season 2 of Unpacking Design, Life Lessons to My Younger Self. Each episode this season is a raw and unfiltered dive into what we wish we knew years ago. Since we can't turn back the clocks for ourselves, we hope that these masterclass discussions will help you on your own journey. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Unpacking Design. This is the second episode in a 12-part series that we're calling Life Lessons to My Younger Self, where Mike and I will be each sharing six lessons that we've learned in our lives and careers so far. And the first lesson, if you didn't catch it last time, Mike talked about pacing yourself and everything that you're pursuing to ensure that you have a balanced life as a designer and to avoid burnout. There were other mini lessons along the way, so make sure you check that episode out as well. Today, I'll be talking about the second lesson in this series, which is speaking with clarity. The first thing I want to talk about is this idea of filler words, like using um, uh, ah, kinda, and sorta. This is especially something that I think is true for architects and designers, because I've always found that creative people have an issue with using filler words because they're trying to explain a concept that they haven't fully thought through yet. And so first, for me to talk about this idea, I just want to talk a little bit more about why it happens. When people are asked a question, most of the time, they feel the need to react quickly and respond without taking a moment to process what was asked and then choose the right response. It usually leads to speaking quicker than we can actually think and feeling like we need to fill the silence with our words. How do we stop using filler words? And before we get into it, I wanted to just give you an example of how filler words actually start to detract from the way that we speak. The way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to use a general phrase about frying an egg. I know it sounds really weird because we're a design podcast, right? But let's talk about frying an egg. If I were introducing it, and I wasn't using filler words, I might say something like, hey, what's up, everyone? Today, I'm going to show you how to fry an egg over easy. Let's get started. Now compare that with, hey, what's up, everyone? Today, I'm kind of going to show you how I would fry an egg. Um, Why don't we get started? How did the two compare? I think one of them had more confidence is what most people would tell me. It's what my fiance always tells me about how I speak that it seems as if the words I say come across with so much more confidence. And that's something that I think is the, is the opposite, and it's the result of getting rid of your personal doubts. And that's what I want to get across in this first mini lesson here about getting rid of the filler words. Because I think if we can learn to speak with less filler words throughout our sentence, we can actually get to a point where the ideas that we want to share come across with a lot more confidence. So I'll share a quick personal story about me and how I used to use filler words in a professional setting as a designer. When I was starting out my career as a young architect, I used to have a lot of doubts about my abilities. I'm sure many of you have had this too, where you join the profession and you actually feel like you need to be this fly on the wall. And that's where I was. I felt like I needed to be an observer, that I didn't do everything that I thought I, I had to that I haven't experienced enough to have the knowledge and the wherewithal to actually carry a project out from beginning to end. And that's exactly where I 
landed when I started off in the profession as an architect. It led to me being a fly on the wall in every single meeting. I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't contribute anything to a conversation because to me, I just wanted to learn and I wanted to see how things should be done. I was on this constant path of trying to get better at what I was doing. Whenever any questions about drawing up a detail for a project or what products we should use for any products we were currently working on would come up, people would turn to me and say, hey, what do you think, Tim? And it was such a simple question. But for some reason, I kept stumbling on all of my words. I couldn't come up with what I wanted to say because I actually didn't really know the answers to the question. And instead of saying, I don't know the answer, I kept saying, well, it could be this, um, but also it could be that. Uh, What if we kind of did this and sort of did that? And ultimately, it led to confusion at the meeting. And at the very end, it always ended up with me just admitting, you know what, guys, I really don't know. And that's the moment that I realized that not knowing isn't actually a bad thing. And to be confident about not knowing, but to also be confident about finding the answer afterwards is what really helped me through that moment. So for me, whenever I'm, I'm thinking about using filler words now, I always think back to the reasons why it happens. For me, the moment that I realized that I was using filler words for all to fill in for the doubts that I had, it was when, when I was in a meeting where someone asked me about a specific product and a detail. And I really didn't know the answer to it, like I was saying before. And this time, I actually told them that I didn't know. And instead, I just asked them back, what would you suggest? Or what have we used before? And just by clarifying it, it helped me realize that it's more of a conversation than it is about trying to ramble on and come up with an answer that I didn't even know the answers to. Because when you're talking about something that's finite and something that has been done before, someone else has probably already experienced it and went through the problems that you already went through. So for me, I learned that I was using filler words throughout my speech because I was either covering up for something that I really didn't know, or I was speaking way too fast for my brain to keep up. And that led me to a few tips for getting rid of filler words in my speech. And these are things that I hope you can walk away with and also apply to yourself. The first thing that I learned was that it's important to take a moment to process the question or the statement. Usually someone will ask you something and you feel like you need to respond right away. Usually if you don't respond right away, you might actually find that the person starts answering the question for you, right? Or let's say you're in a negotiation and they say, hey, Mike, I'm going to give you $2,000 because I think you did better than last year. And I think you're, you're bringing more value to the table. What do you think about that? Most people start stumbling right away. They're like, oh, what, what do I say? What do I say? But if you actually give that some time to breathe and you take a moment to process what was just said, you might find that the person who made you that offer will start to talk over themselves and say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't sound good to you. It's not good. Well, what about if I give you like a thousand more? And so in a tense situation like that, sometimes silence is the way to go. But that silence is your time to actually process what you want to say, how you want to say it, and then say it the way that it should be said. The second thing I learned was 
to come up with your personal response and to speak at a pace that's in sync with your mind. I find that a lot of designers will do this, where they just start speaking, 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 and they try and speak what they're thinking into existence as if they're painting you a picture with words. And generally, when you're doing that, you always feel like you're trying to fill the space because you feel like someone's not getting what you're saying, or you're being so descriptive about something so artistic that you see confusion on someone's face and you're trying to get rid of that confusion because of that expression that you saw. And so I think it's important to actually come up with this idea of what you're trying to say and say it at a pace that's good for you. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't talk too slow where people know that you're just saying things because you're, you don't actually have an answer. Say things when you're ready and say it the way that you want to say it. The next thing I learned from this whole idea about using filler words is if you feel like you're starting to lose sight of the words that you want to say, slow down, pause, and get back on track. Then start speaking again. And what I mean by this is if you're talking to someone and you're saying something, Somewhere throughout that sentence, just like I did there with that pause, I might actually be thinking about how I want to say the next few things. A lot of people try and say exactly what's in their head without taking a moment to figure out the ways that the words should be compounded together to create a sentence that has meaning. So when you take these little pauses in between words, it doesn't need to be between every small word unless you're trying to make a statement it could be between the end of a phrase so that you can continue the next phrase. It can also be used so that you can emphasize something. So just make sure that you slow down if you feel like you're talking too fast. Take a moment to catch yourself. Then say what you're trying to say again. The other thing is to practice pausing between your sentences, especially the sentences that carry a lesson, meaning, and information. I used to be someone who would just ramble, 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 talk, 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 talk. And whenever I did that, I found that when people were listening to me, there'd be a moment when they would glaze over. And it's because when there's no pauses, everything starts to blend and everything starts to be the same. It's like throwing things into a blender and trying to make a smoothie. And instead of pulsing it, you just run that machine from beginning to end. And by the end of it, you have this mixture of things that came together. And that's the way people will hear you. Whereas if you pulse it, you'll actually see that the fruits inside of it start to crumble slowly, but it gives it that air, the aeration that it needs. And so when you think about taking pauses between your sentences, make sure you do it in the moments that really matter. Take a second, say what you want to say, make sure it had meaning. And when you're done, stop, let it breathe. And once you do that, carry on with the next one. And the last part about using filler words before we move into the next mini lesson is if you don't know or you have nothing to, to add to anything that you're talking about, just say that you have nothing else to add. Don't feel like you need to add something. If you're in a big discussion if you're on an app like Clubhouse and you're on stage and people are asking you something or someone's talking about a topic and they get around to you, if all you're going to say is, I agree with what so-and-so said because this, this, and that, and all the things that you just said was a replica of what they just said, then maybe it's not worth saying. 
But if you had an idea to emphasize, that might actually be worth jumping in on and adding to that discussion. Now, I'm curious, Mike, after hearing all of that, I'm curious to know your side of it and what you think about using filler words and your own personal stories around it. Yeah, that's uh, that was great, Tim. I think that there's a lot to unpack just even in that one mini lesson that you started. Uh, I was writing notes the whole time. And a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, uh, I'll break it down here a little bit because I want to go, I want to challenge you on a couple of these things. Um, so myself, I'm in the process of learning almost from you, like you're the, uh, the sage in my, my quest for better speech, uh, in my life. Right. I think I've seen you adapt your speech and clear up your speech a lot over time. And you're probably the most self-aware, self-reflective person I know when it comes to actually speaking, which you might find interesting because I think you're also very self-deprecating of your speech and don't give yourself enough credit as to when you're doing it really well. So, you know, kudos for that. Um, I think the one thing that really stood out to me across everything you said was how designers and creatives use language to paint a picture because they feel like they need to create with words, design something. I think sometimes it's compensation for the lack of the substance to an idea. And I, I think that I use a lot of flourishy language sometimes, and it's something that I've had to even pare down. It's not just about removing the ums and the sort ofs and the kind ofs, but it's also about, I think of it like the, the idea of how newspapers are written, right? They're written for a fourth grader reading level. And I think of how my speech has changed over time since I was in college. I wanted to use a lot of flourishy language, especially when I started out in design school and in architecture, because you're learning a lot of different things. Uh, I will admit that at that time in my life, I was very arrogant also, so that did not help anything. So I was using a lot of words that I remembered from my uh, AP English classes that I had just taken in high school. And I was very uh, pompous sometimes when it came to talking. And I think that I've tried to become a little bit more relatable as time passes in my life, just because one, a lot of people don't understand all those words and it's not worth trying to make yourself sound smarter. So I wonder what your take is on that. Just maybe if we could take a second and, and break that down a little bit, but what is your take on using flourishy language in addition to these kinds of extra things where we, we want to fill, it's not just about filling space, but it's about trying to make things more glamorous than they actually are. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And the way that I would describe my response to it is that most designers and creative people in general often forget 
the audience that they're speaking to. And it's important to say that because when you don't know who the audience is and you're speaking to everybody as though they're a creative person as well, you tend to fill your entire discussion with that person with creative jargon from your respective field. If you're a graphic designer, you might use words that only graphic designers get. If you're an architect, you might use words that only architects get. But in general, if you're a creative person, you might actually be using creative expressions that artistic people get. But if you're in a corporate setting pitching an idea to corporate people who are bankers and don't have an artistic perception of reality, and instead they're in the logical sense of the world where they want to understand something, in that particular situation, you need to be able to switch the language you're using to speak to that type of population. And the way that I've been practicing for myself is to take the creative expressions that I once used a lot and actually do my best at describing it universally. Because if you can find a universal way of saying what you're trying to say so that a child can understand it, so that someone in a different language can understand it, then I think you've created that bridge between the gap of your creative expression and what you're actually trying to, cl to clearly express to the party at the other end. And if you can clear that gap, not only do I think it'll bring you more clients, I think it'll get people to understand your ideas. Oftentimes, I find that people who are very artistic and creative will generally say something like, you know, I feel like they just don't get it. You know, I, I'm explaining them this idea, but they, people do, they just don't get it. Well, if you're the only one getting your idea and only your closest friends who always are positive with you say, yeah, I get it, I get it. Then perhaps what it comes down to is that you're speaking a language that only you understand. And if you ask your friends to explain back to you what they think of that idea, maybe they can't even do it. And they're only saying, yes, it's a great idea because you're their friend. So for me, when I think about this idea of speaking to an audience, the way that you're ex explaining it, Mike, I it makes so much sense because everyone who goes through any kind of creative design school experiences that. And I feel like most people carry it into the profession. I was in a meeting recently. I think it was two years ago. I say recently, like two years was recent. But anyway, let's say two years was recent for me, where a colleague of mine was talking to a potential client who had maybe a few hundred million dollars for projects they had in mind. They wanted to come up with a master plan for this idea of a city. And I remember sitting at that meeting talking about the designs we had in mind. And all of a sudden, this one phrase came out that a lot of architects use. The person said, you know, I feel like that just, it, the buildings just aren't speaking to me that way. They're just not saying that they want to be this. And the client looked around the room like, what's, what's going on? The client locked eyes with me. And I remember saying, oh, I believe what so-and-so is trying to say is that the way that the building is being clad for its facade doesn't relate to the context around it. And what it really is, 
is that we need to add more glass. We need more curtain walls. We need more of this. We need more of that. Because with that, it'll fit into its context, which is the goal of your master plan. It's actually to create a city that blends. And through that quick thing, the client was like, oh, I get it. But afterwards, the client stuck on this one thing and kept laughing about it. He kept saying, oh, the building doesn't speak to me. Buildings can't speak. And, you know, he got into this whole thing about it. And then he just thought we were crazy. And so I'm curious what you think about that, because I'm sure you've had moments where you've heard other creative people talk this way, Mike. Yeah, I I was uh, I was muted just now, but I was laughing. Um, So. I think you're right. You see a lot of this happen more in design school where the design school system, whether I think it's architecture, I believe this happens probably in other disciplines as well. I could be wrong, but I I think that the system of putting your project up for critique, being critiqued by academic professionals, and then challenging that critique or defending it is part of that entire mindset, right? Or that entire entire way of learning. That's how we learn as designers. We create something, we put it out into the world, it gets critiqued, we get feedback, we either adjust it or not. And because we are a certain kind of creative talking to a certain kind of creative, we create these loops for ourselves, I think, where that's the only feedback we get. We're only getting feedback from other people like us, right? So when you, I hear it a lot when kids start in, and I say kids because I'm now in my mid thirties, so I can say kids because I'm an old man. Um, when emerging professionals come out of school, they immediately say, oh, well, this isn't the same. And there are numerous reasons why that's the case, right? Based on going from an education system to a business format, there's a lot of reasons why that's different. But I think one of the main reasons is because of this disparate and very sudden change in who we're talking to. And I think your point about context and the context, not just of that project, but of the people in the room is a very, uh, it resonates with me a lot as a, as an idea, because I don't think I've necessarily thought of it that way. Maybe it's more of an intuition that has developed for me over time to pare back the kinds of words that I'm adding, sort of like what I mentioned before with the flourishy language. I'm trying to use Uh, it's funny because we learn all these words and we talk to each other in the profession uh, with these words, but then we almost have to have a second brain to walk into another room, have another conversation. And I think that a lot of people don't know how to switch between those two mindsets easily. It becomes a challenge just to do that. And then public speaking being one of the top sort of documented fears that people have. I think even if you go into a critique based 
education system, you come out and the person on the other end can dictate whether or not you get a job for your office, whether or not you continue working for that person, whether or not you're making that person happy. So then your boss is happy. Like there's a lot of other factors when we go into the real world that I think messes with people's minds. And I kind of want to get your take on that as well, because I think it's salient to why we add all this extra fluff into it. Like we're trying to compensate and we have that self-doubt because our context for ourselves has changed so dramatically. Yeah. I think what it comes down to is this common thread that ties every creative person who goes through college and then enters the profession in the same way. It's this idea that design schools and art schools don't teach the people in those colleges about business. Because if you learn about business, you learn about how money flows, you learn about how to speak to clients, you learn about this bigger world of actually taking the thing that you're creating through the creativity that you have and selling it to someone else so you can make a living doing what you love. And because there's that big gap I find that most people aren't used to speaking to anyone outside of their own school. The reason why I learned how to speak the way that I'm speaking now is because when I was in school, I actually didn't surround myself with only the architects around me. I surrounded myself with friends of mine who were in doctoral school learning how to be physical therapists. I surrounded myself with business people who are in business school, people who are in law school, people who are in leadership school for international relations. And through that, I remember people asking me what I was working on. And when they asked me, I remember in the beginning, I tried to explain my project, the way that my professors were talking, the way that my peers were talking. And the moment that I started, I saw them glaze over. And all they were doing was nodding. They turned into that bobblehead friend, right? That was just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, Tim, that's so cool. Wow. And when I asked them, well, what do you think was cool about what I just explained to you? They couldn't tell me. And that's when I realized that I needed to change how I described the project. And not only that, I had to figure out how to explain a project so that people understood the concept without even seeing it. So whenever I talk about a project now, I jump right in and I tell them why I designed it first. Why is this project important to me? Because now they feel that connection, not just to the project, but to me. And then from that, I jump into how I achieved it. But when I explain how I achieved it, I take out the jargon. I talk about the context that we're designing within, the hardships, right? The struggle. It's like, it's like when you read a book, there's the issue that brings you up to the climax. And that's where I bring them with the how. I bring them up that bridge. I tell them all the issues around it, how I'm solving it. And once we get to that top, I show them if I have it in front of me. And if I don't have it, I explain to them and I tell them what I did to solve it. And that's where I bring them at the bottom of the roller coaster and I end it. And then I ask them what they think. And from that, they tell me everything back. Oh my God, I love this idea of how you're focusing on building a community through this social relationship of your design. And, you know, like they start describing it back to me. And I feel like that's where we need to start bridging the gap between what you do in design school and what you do after. 
there needs to be a class that teaches designers and artistic and creative people how to actually explain an idea to different audiences. And not only do that, but to explain it like they're pitching it for a potential business. Because if you can pitch your artistic idea, then I think your future is limitless. So with that, let's keep this going. The first part that we just talked about was using filler words and getting clarity by getting rid of the filler words in your sentences. The next mini lesson that I think is important that I would teach to myself is to find comfort in silence. We touched on it a little bit in that first mini series or that first mini lesson, but the, the comfort in silence part is really tough. And to start this one off, I just wanted to acknowledge that there's this one kind of silence that I don't, th- I don't think anybody will ever get used to. It's the awkward moment where a conversation just ends. No one's saying anything. It's like you're talking to your friends about something and all of a sudden it just stops. Like, like when the DJ just stops the record and it's just quiet. And everyone's looking around like, who's going to speak up? Who's going to break the silence? I think you're always going to have something like that. In that moment, I don't think there's comfort in that silence. But if you can find humor in that situation, I think that's fine. But as you start going into the other situations that you might be within when there's silence, there's the moments that come after a question, right? When someone asks you something, and then there's that one or two seconds of silence that most people don't give enough time for their brain to comprehend and come up with an answer that actually makes sense and turn that answer, all of that that soup full of thoughts in your head into one clear sentence just to get you started. Most people don't take that time because in our society, especially today with social media and all these other means of communication, we always feel like we need to respond immediately. When your boss asks you a question, you better have an answer right away, right? It's like, it's what we're taught. And if someone sends you a text message, they expect a response right away. If you don't send them a response back for a day or two, they might actually start losing it. They'll say, hey, why aren't you responding to me? Like you ever had someone send you a message? I had this happen recently. I'll share a story. I had somebody ask me a question about whether or not I wanted to participate in a competition with them. I was so swamped with work that I just, I never had the, the thought or the foresight to say, oh, let me respond. Because I, I read the message. I got back to what I was doing and I didn't see the notification anymore. When I finally read it a day or two later, that person had an entire conversation with themselves where it started with, hey, Tim, do you want to pursue this competition with me? Oh, hey, if it's about what I said before, man, like uh, I'm, I'm, I can't believe that you would take it this way. To th- Then from that, it went to, well, this is kind of childish of you, isn't it? Can't you just respond? Then it went to, hey, I'm sorry about what I said, but are, honestly, are you interested in this competition? Then it went on to, hey, you know what, man? I hate this silence thing. I'm done with this. Forget you. And I was like, wow, I don't really know you that well, but okay. I, I had a deadline to meet. I can't believe that I'm getting this whole thing. But that's when I realized that there are people who don't have comfort in silence, that they feel the need to 
press and push or to try and respond without actually thinking about anything else around them. There are people who are selfish, like the person who was going through the, all those motions just then that in that story I explained. Then there are the people who are anxious and feel like they need to respond. And it's tough to get rid of that anxiety. So for me, when I think about those moments of silence after a question of, is asked, I feel like they're good moments when there's silence after a question because it just shows that you're taking time to process. And if someone presses you on to give them an answer before you're ready, you can just say, hey, can I have a moment? I'm processing what you just said. I just need to understand it a little bit more. And then I'll respond in a few seconds. Just give me, give me, can I get a little bit of time? And usually from that, you'll find a person is so respectful and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, to take your time. Think about it. Make sure you, know, you come up with the right response. And so when someone asks you a question, take a few seconds. Even if you think you have the answer, just take a moment. Take a moment, breathe, and go through all the different things that are running through your head. Because generally speaking, you'll find that you have at least two answers. And out of those two, one of them clearly articulates what you're thinking in the best way. And then the last part about this mini lesson here that I, I wanted to mention is that there's the intentional silences that I was talking about earlier. They're the moments that you add in when you're speaking because those intentional silences carry more weight than you actually think. So when you're speaking and you have something meaningful to say, especially when you're sharing a story and you get to the very end or you get to a gritty part of it, when you end those sentences, stop. Take a moment, let it breathe. Because those pauses add drama to that sentence and to what you're trying to get across. And if you do it right, you'll learn how to pace the way you speak so that there's moments where you're speaking quicker because you're really building up. You're building up this idea. You're getting people excited. And then you start to slow down a little bit and then you pause. You'll feel that people are with you because you'll feel that they're waiting for that next word. And if you do it in that way, that's where you captivate the people you're talking to. And that's where you know that your ideas either got across or you're about to have a great discussion because they actually listened. And so I'm curious what you think about all that, Mike, because I know you and I have been talking a lot more on Clubhouse. We've been in rooms together. And there are a lot of moments of silences because in the app, you have people who have to pause. They have to um, mute themselves and then unmute themselves to speak. And generally... If you don't unmute yourself fast enough and someone else does, then they get the, their word in and then you're in this waiting, in, in this line just waiting for your chance. So I'm curious what you think about it because we've been in so many new situations together where it's been, it's been tested, tried, and I think you and I have experimented with finding comfort in our silences. Yeah, I. it's really interesting because I think this is another, all the points that you're making are things that I tend to struggle with and I'm working on myself. So I'm glad that we're talking about each of these things individually. And the idea of finding comfort in silence is 
probably equal to, if not more, I guess, long-term important to me than even the first topic we talked about, because as you know, Tim, from talking to me a lot, I really tend to just run on for days and I have a lot of different kinds of thoughts. I want to stitch them all together, but I don't ever stop to pause, let that one idea breathe. I just kind of riff and move on into something else. I don't even let other people ask a question sometimes. I don't let people respond. I I think it comes back to what you were saying a little bit about having um, some kind of anxiety that the silence is a bad thing. And I don't necessarily think that it is. There are definitely times where I feel compelled to finish a thought and it's important enough to me to not have that pause. Right. But I think in a lot of cases, you've sort of opened my eyes to the fact that if I just took the moment to take a breath, like I just did, or think about what I'm going to say sort of as I'm going rather than just spewing into the ether. Um, It would be a very different conversation. If I had this conversation with you six months ago, it would look a lot different than it does right now. And that's partially because I've been using some of these tips and tricks and strategies that you've been talking about because we've been literally talking a lot on things like Clubhouse or platforms where we're able to get these experiences and I think going back to your your initial idea of there's comfort in silence, I want to get your take a little bit on I think I think that people like myself don't like the silence. And I've mentioned this to you before because I feel like when I'm silent and there's no thought that's being expressed in that moment that I don't feel like I'm providing, and this is maybe more from the content creator side, but I think it is very salient to and relevant to people who are trying to share an idea with a client, to share an idea with somebody else. They feel like, and I feel like I'm not providing value in that dead space, in that silent space. Like I'm not manifesting enough quality in that time period. Like there's something that I need to continue to do. And I kind of want to get your take on that is, is maybe a reason why certain people like creatives just don't stop talking. Uh, I think that I'm one of many people who are dealing with this right now where they just want to keep talking because when they're take clubhouse as an example, a very specific example, when you're on the stage and you're there to share an idea, you sometimes just want to keep talking because you want to provide value to that space, to those people who are there listening to you. And it becomes challenging to stop because you want to just keep going and keep talking because the times you're able to talk are few and far between. And I kind of want to get your take on if people feel like the silence is the enemy because it's not providing value. Yeah. I'm going to bring this into a very interesting place, into a place that I love in my life, which is food. 
because this is going to explain it in a way that I could as of right now in this very moment. Because as you, as you were speaking, I was thinking about it. And the words that came across to me very clearly was value, silence, and expressing yourself. So to me, when I think about food and the food industry, right, there's value that you find in the food that you eat and the experiences that you get. There's the expression from the person creating that dish, creating that food, creating that thing that you're going to get. And then there's all of the things in between. And so when I think about the food industry, you have different types and levels of value that you'd be getting based on where you went. If you went to McDonald's, you're going to get a lot of food, right? You're going to get it just like how you speak a lot. If you just keep talking, 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 yeah, you're getting a lot of food. But are you getting value? Are you getting something that you would actually think about and tell someone else about? Oh, yeah, you know, I went to Burger King the other day. I got three Whoppers. I got two onion rings and I got five large fries and I ate it with only one other person. That's not really valuable, right? You're not really sharing something of value. Yeah, you got a lot of things, but you're not getting something valuable. And it's related to a bigger industry. It's related to this idea of the materialistic society where most people look at a minimalist and say, oh my God, how do you live that way with just one table and four chairs in a house? You know, And so when you think about food and you think about this idea of value, you have that Burger King, you have that McDonald's level. Then you have the next level, which is like the, the local sh shops, the local restaurants that you can go buy a good dish from. And it's a place that you tell friends about. Oh, yeah, I went to so-and-so's place and I had a great time. You know, this dish was great. They had this special. And then when you go to a three-star Michelin restaurant, now you're talking about value. You're talking about time. You're talking about expression. You're talking about all the things that you just said. The differences are one place gave you a lot for a very little price. But it's not the thing you remember. It's not the thing you talk about. And it's not the thing that you felt gave you much. So when you add in a bunch of stuff to give to someone, sometimes it's not really valuable. As the person making all of that stuff, the person working at McDonald's, the person working at Burger King at these fast food restaurants, they're not giving you value in that sense. What they're giving you value for is that you're paying less money for lower quality food, but you're getting an abundance of it. An abundance of information in an age where everyone is bombarded by information already isn't what people are looking for. What people are actually looking for today when they talk about value and communication and through clarity of speech is that you can take all those ingredients that you have and actually bundle it into that one thing that when they taste it, when they hear it, when they have it, they walk away and remember you for that one sentence because it stuck out so much that that creative expression that you had made so much sense to them that they now share your ideas and values with other people. And that's what value really is in a discussion. It's being able to take this grand idea and instead of expressing it in a book, to express it in a phrase. And I think that's where a lot of creatives start to struggle because creative people generally try and speak about their ideas 
for so long because they're trying to speak it into existence. In other words, they don't actually know what the end product is yet. Because if you clearly knew what it was, you would clearly express it to somebody else in a shorter time. But when creative people speak, they usually don't actually know what they're trying to say. So they drag on and they try and discover it for themselves through conversation. And that's where the audience part comes in. Because if you're just simply trying to figure out what you're designing, what you're creating, the audience for you are the people around you at your firm. It's not the people outside of your firm. You don't do this with a client because they're not there to help you figure out the idea. They're paying you to figure it out. Take that idea, express it clearly. That's it. And so the comfort in silence part, I think instead of rambling on and dragging something on, if you can take what you were just about to ramble on about, turn it into a two to three sentence thing, people will walk away from that like, wow, I can't believe this guy took something that would have taken me a day to say and just said it in three sentences because that is value. Uh, does that make sense, Mike? Oh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that it, it comes back to the, the first two topics that we're we've been talking about get, trying to find the comfort in the silence and trying to get rid of all these like extra flourishy words i didn't ever think about sort of quality versus quantity but that's kind of what you were getting at and uh i i don't believe that you just called me mcdonald's but i'm, I'm pretty sure that it, it kind of came off that way a little bit maybe oh, oh. <laughs> um, i like that I, I like that whole expression i'm gonna use it more now <laughs> yeah. so I think that the I think for me what it comes down to is that people are insecure about what they're saying and the silence is uncomfortable in a, in and of itself and to a lot of people it feels like what they're going up against right so for me in particular, I have a lot of anxiety around there being just silence. And you've been in these clubhouse rooms before, Tim, especially when you're, they call it being up on stage when you're able to speak, right? So it's even, even the way they describe the, the method of being able to speak in a public forum like this gives me a little bit of anxiety because to be up on stage and to be the person who is everybody's focus in that room is on the person who is talking in that moment. Right. And there's a lot of weight that comes behind that. It feels very stressful uh, to provide value in, in the moment and to constantly be cycling through value because as you know, Tim, when people come in and out of conversations, there are these moments where you have to reset the room because people may not have even heard the first thing you said five minutes ago, which could have been the three sentences that you talked about. So for me, when I'm in that situation, I feel like I have to reset not only the room, but reset how much value I'm giving to people in that moment so that the people that are coming into the room now are getting the same amount of value that the last set of people got. And it's very stressful to keep and maintain that level. Now, that's a very specific situation. 
it's if you were in a public speaking situation and people were sitting down in a room with you, everybody would sit down at the same time and you wouldn't have to deal with that. That's a very clubhouse specific thing. But I think it comes back to trying to function with today's attention spans as well in terms of people want things now, people want things in the moment, they want them brief. And it is very difficult. I think Chris Doe said this, it could have been somebody else, but to make the complicated simple is a very difficult skill to master. And it's even more difficult when you're trying to say those words out loud, because for a lot of us creatives, we're able to internalize a lot of these thoughts And I kind of think of it like when you have a dream, right? So if you go to sleep and you have a dream, you interpret whatever that dream is for yourself. But to be able to actually then describe that to somebody, you know, I can internalize my dreams all I want and I can think about them and what they might mean, what they might not mean. But it's a much different skill to then relate that and translate that into something that, you know, Tim Ong understands or that somebody else that is in a different audience understands. And that's the kind of thing I think about when I think about making the complicated simple. And when it comes to finding that comfort in the silence, I'm already like on edge trying to provide value. And I I think now that you've essentially called me out as being McDonald's. Um, I think that I, it's actually, it's a helpful analogy because I think for me, it, it, it makes me think about how quantity is really the kind of the enemy of quality in a speaking situation specifically, right? So there are other forms of communication. There are other forms of creativity. There are other forms of design, but in speaking specifically, there's something to be said about just getting to the point and you made this point earlier if you don't have something of quality to say then just maybe don't say it it almost like erodes the level of quality that you may have given previously or that you're about to give beyond that and it it just makes you sound like you're trying to compensate for you know we talked a lot about self-doubt already and i think that there's something very scary about silence because you want to keep providing value, but it's, and it might feel counterintuitive in the moment, but I think that's what makes it so difficult as a, as a process to speak is that a lot of these things that we're talking about are really, really good tips and strategies, but they're very counterintuitive to a creative. Yeah. All of that makes sense. And, you know, that's where, I think it's a good time to actually switch now to the third lesson I would teach myself. So we went over the filler words and and the importance of getting rid of them in your sentence and in your daily speech. The second thing was finding comfort in your silence. And now the third mini lesson that I have is more of an action item. It's something I would teach myself if I could go back in time. And it would be to practice speaking with other people in different situations. The reason why it's important is because it'll help you discover your own natural way of speaking. The way that I'm speaking to you right now, Mike, is just how I speak to everyone now. I talk to my fiance this way. I talk to my mother in a different language this way. I talk to everybody this way because it's just how I am as a person. And when you find your own way of speaking through conversations with so many different types of people in different situations, 
you can talk about anything with anyone and get your ideas across. The second thing is to have opinions about the things that you really care about, but be open to the different ideas that will come at you so that you can keep learning and respecting other perspectives around that idea. And what I mean by that is it's not just important to have an opinion. It's important for you to have a position because if you don't have a position, there's no reason for you to speak, especially when it comes to an intellectual discourse. If all you're going to say is you agree, you agree, you agree, because you don't actually know enough to get deeper into the subject, then it might be time to admit to yourself that you need to do a little bit more research in this area. So when you come to the table, you have something worth sharing. And that's a really big one because a lot of people feel like they have something worth sharing. Everyone feels like they have to be part of a discussion. Everyone feels like they have, they're compelled to say something. But in reality, Unless you're with just your group of friends who are close to you, you don't always need to have something to say. You don't need to be up on stage. You don't need to be up on a pedestal. There's no soapbox for everybody. If someone's making a point and you agree with it, respect that they did it and give them that respect. Don't jump in to say you agree and repeat it in your own words because now you're wasting people's time. And instead of wasting time, have a position, have an opinion, and express it clearly. And then have an open discourse about it. Because if you don't have a position, you don't have an opinion, then there's just nothing worth sharing. And I know that that sounds so mean to say it that way, but there are so many people out there that I'm finding are only there to be the backup dancer for everybody else. And not everyone is good at dancing. I'm not good at dancing, so I won't be that backup dancer. So if you have something that you want to encourage people to do and you have a position and people know you for it, then speak up and share that position. But if you don't, then go out and discover your position and your opinions and your subjectivity, but come to the table with an open mind. And so the last part is just about that. And the last part of this mini lesson is to speak up and be part of discussions both in the professional world of design for you and also personally, because these are different situations. A personal situation is where you can have an open discourse about any kind of topic with the people who are close to you and who know you. Talk about anything. Just be you, right? Say anything you want to say. Be the yes man. Be the yes woman. Be whoever you want to be. But when you're in a professional setting, you'll start to realize that people actually respect the people who don't speak as much because the moments that you speak matter, so they listen. Learn how to speak well, and then you'll be acknowledged for it. And that's the whole part about practicing. And that's why I like this as an action item because it's not just about listening to Mike and I talk about this. It's actually about going out, trying it, and putting it to use because you might not believe this, but even the people around you your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your mother, your dog, your children, all of them want to be heard and listened to. And all of them want to be spoken back to in a way that's clear to them. If you could learn a universal way of speaking to everybody about what you're doing, who you're about, your position, your opinions, asking for something, doing something, they'll respect you even more. And your relationship with them will get deeper 
because now you're going beyond the surface level. How's the weather today? And you're getting to the, what happened in school today? Is there anything you want to talk about? Is there anyone in school that you feel like is really helping you learn a lot? Is there a teacher that you like, right? Like if you're talking to a kid or if you're talking to another professional at your own firm, maybe it's about personal growth. Hey, so what projects are you working on? Can you tell me a little bit more about that project? What are you hoping to learn from it? What are you hoping to take away from it? Then start that discussion because you as a person who have been working for that much time already have position and opinions about how to help someone else get to where you are, but also how to avoid your mistakes and get beyond you. And so just practice, go out there, put these things to use. I don't know if you have anything you want to say about that idea, Mike. Yeah, so there's a couple things that came to mind as you were talking. One was something that I think I've intuited over the last couple months and maybe last year or so, but you have definitely, this isn't a bad thing or a, or a good thing really necessarily. It's just a something I've noticed that you have started to speak a different way and you're very cognizant of the words that you choose and how you speak to people. And I can get that sense that because even for people who don't understand what I'm saying, Tim talks this way when we're not on a podcast, like Tim will just keep talking this way very clearly and concisely and have the pauses and think about things. And it's almost like you're practicing that skill all the time. And I think before I have anything to say about your next, uh, your, this topic in particular, because I do have some uh, thoughts on starting these conversations, do you ever feel like this, I know that you said that it's your natural way of speaking or it's the way that you found speaking, but do you ever feel that by using all these tactics, using all these strategies, that it becomes a little bit tiring? No, I, I wouldn't say that because to me, it's not a tactic or a strategy. It's actually just a way of clearly talking to somebody else so that we don't waste time talking about things that don't matter. I, I realized from a young age that for me, I'm just not a surface level person. My fiance will tell you this. If we ever went out and we were chit-chatting with a group of friends, the moment they say something like, hey, Tim, what movie have you watched recently? Or, hey, did you see the latest Avengers movie? Or something like that. Like something that people should know, right? I would just break down. I don't know what to say. I, maybe I didn't watch it. Like I'm starting to explore these other avenues. But in the past, I wouldn't feel comfortable in any other, you know, like I wouldn't be able to have that surface level discussion. So as a person for me, I learned that I like to go deeper and I like to understand people. I like to listen to what people have to say. So now in a situation like that, I ask questions. Oh no, I haven't seen it. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? What did you like about the movie? And it, it taught me how to be curious and to lean into my curiosity, but to also be a guide and try and guide conversations in a way that for me goes a little beyond the surface and actually gets to the meat of something so that I can understand an issue at hand, a movie that someone's watching and what's exciting about it, and actually apply it back to like things that I'm working on and what I want to try and do next. 
So when I ask people about movies, I try and see if there's something that is in the movie that helps them get something more out of it. Is there something about the cinematics? Is there something about the audio? Is there something about how the story unfolded? And if there is, I try and learn about what they were interested in. And the, in, the, the part to me that fascinates me is people respect you so much more because they see how curious you are about them. And so for me, I don't feel like it's tactics or strategies. I feel like it's actually helping me get to the ideas that matter. And that in itself is important to me because it's helped my relationship with my fiance so much just by asking her if something is bothering her and what it is and getting to the meat of it. How many people in our world don't actually do that with the people that they love? How many people just take something at, at face value and say, oh, okay, she said she's fine. Okay, I guess she's fine. Now, if I can read that she's not fine, I ask her more questions, I get curious and I figure it out and I see how I can help. And that in and of itself, if you relate it to a client relationship, those are the clients that will always come back to you. A friend of mine that I designed something for, I do that for all the time. And he comes back to me with opportunities that I turn down because I'm just not practicing on my own yet. So when you learn to build relationships in this way with clear communication, it really helps. And uh, I'm curious what you think about it because it sounds to me like maybe um, for you, it's just not it's not inherent in your nature to to take that extra step to try and and not practice the tactics, but actually just to figure out your own way of communicating with other people and getting beyond just the surface level kind of discussions. Yeah, for sure. I I think in particular, we could dive into this other path that I'm thinking about right now, or we could uh, take it in a different way. But I'm thinking about, we haven't said these words yet, but introvert, extrovert. And I think that those two words mean a lot to different people. So for context, I would consider myself to be an introvert most of the time. Most people who know me don't really know me that well unless I kind of let them in. And that doesn't mean that I'm shy. I, I've described myself as uh, somebody who, if I'm if I'm meant to be in a room, as an example, if I'm supposed to be at a client meeting because the principal has asked me to be there, I'm running a project, or there's people know that I'm supposed to be there, I'm on. I'm like, I'm able to just talk to anybody. It's I'm like a completely different person in some ways. And I just feel energized by the fact that I've been accepted into that mini tribe for that that 30 minutes, hour, whatever it is, right? When it comes to interfacing with people, even like I just started a new job, right? And I'm starting, aside from the fact that we're in a pandemic still as we record this, and it's a little bit awkward because we still have to social distance. I don't naturally have the ability to go over to somebody, say, hey, how's it going? And then get into those deeper levels of conversation that you're talking about, Tim. And that's always been kind of a struggle for me. As soon as I start to work on somebody, work on a project with somebody, and 
I can start to, again, go back to that. I'm, I've been authenticated and allowed to be interfacing with that person by somebody else, right? When that happens, it's a little bit easier for me to have these conversations to get deeper. I, or if I'm asked to mentor somebody specifically, I'll, I'll go do that. And I'm, I'm on, but somebody almost has to give me that permission in a lot of ways. And I, I'm even just realizing that as I say this out loud, that that's kind of what my thing is. Um, I do feel that I have become better at listening at what, to what people are trying to say to me over time. And I think that's a very valuable way of thinking about this too is so it's even helped me in my own relationship with my wife, Jessica, where I would ramble on for a lot and I would use a lot of jargon and I would, I would talk about things in these kind of extra ways. We go back to the quality versus quantity sort of way of communicating. And I realized after a while that I wasn't really listening to, I just needed to listen. I didn't even need to say things to, you know, solve the issues or it was more just about understanding that person's point of view and being there as a, when they ask me a question of what they should do or ask an opinion, it, it almost switches the conversation because they're, they've accepted that you're listening. They, they have trusted you as part of the other, the other half of that conversation. And you creates a different dynamic than if I was just to say, okay, so let's say she has a bad day at work and it's because of a coworker situation or something like that. The old Mike might have gone into, okay, well, you got to do this, this, and this, and this is why, and this is my experience and blah, blah, blah. And like, it wouldn't have really gotten to the heart of, okay, well, she's unhappy about um, something that she's had to, a new project that she's been given by this other person. And really it's getting to the heart of maybe she doesn't even really want to be doing this job, but we wouldn't get to that deeper level if I hadn't sat there and kind of listened to her story, what she's trying to get at. And I, I like the way that you put it where you started talking about how even topics in conversation like uh, movies, you can ask, you can still be, this is the way I was thinking of it as you were saying it, you can still be selfish in a way. I don't know if that's the right word, but selfish about how the conversation goes for you. So you're still getting something out of it, but you're also simultaneously helping somebody through and understand their context even more, which I think is really interesting because in our society today, everything is so surface level to your point uh, as well about this kind of consumerism and everything. And even just social media, everything is now, now, now I, all, you know, people don't even really think about other people half the time and you see this everywhere. So that even when it comes down to, I'm amazed at how many times when I'm just going to get a coffee and I genuinely say thank you to the the barista or the whoever who's like handing me that cup of coffee and I just genuinely look at them in the eye and say thank you, that acknowledgement of who that person is, that they exist and just listening to, I'm not, they didn't even say anything, but it's almost like I'm acknowledging them. I think that goes a long way. So speaking with other people, interfacing with other people, I think is really important. And I really like the way that you discussed and kind of talked about 
listening to more than just the surface level so that you can get to something deeper. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. And, and to, to end that one mini lesson there about practicing with, by speaking with other people, what you just said is the one thing that I hope people can walk away with as they practice. It's this idea that clear communication is actually about empathy. You need to have empathy to have clear communication. When you're in a discussion, it's not about what you want to say. It's about what they're looking for from you. Putting yourself in their shoes and saying something in a way that they will understand. Most of the time, people don't say things in ways that others understand because they don't empathize with that person. If you can actually read through what someone's saying and get to the heart of the issues at, at stake, you can actually take that moment to phrase what you're going to say in a way that's more impactful to that person in that moment. And so I think empathy is the biggest part of speaking clearly, because if you can empathize with anybody and you can then combine it with your position and the things that you're trying to say, but say it in a clear way that's meaningful to them, then you've achieved the clarity of communication. So there were two other mini lessons that don't really have anything deeper in them, but they were things that I wanted to mention because if I could go back into the past and teach myself how to speak clearly, these would be the last two tidbits of information, the golden nuggets, if you will, of what I would tell myself. So we went from talking about getting rid of your filler words, like, um, uh, sort of, kind of, to talking about finding comfort in the silence, the silences between your sentences, the silences that come after a question, and actually practicing all of these things with other people in different types of situations and groups, learning to empathize. And now the last two to me that I would teach myself would be, the first one would be that clear communication is one of the toughest skills to learn. And I want to say that because it's not going to be an easy journey. I, don't, I didn't just speak this way overnight. Like Mike, you and I have been podcasting for such a long time. And now I'm slowly getting into this groove of, wow, this is actually my natural way of speaking. So it's the toughest skill to learn, but it's actually the most valuable. Being able to articulate your ideas de-escalate issues when people are upset, and maintain control of a discussion is going to help you exponentially grow in your life and your career. Because that's what clear communication can help you do. If you clearly articulate all of your complex creative ideas and express it to other people, they'll respect you more. If you can listen to somebody and empathize enough and find comfort in your silence, you can actually de-escalate issues, especially in a tense situation where someone's pointing a finger. And you can de-escalate it and get back to a center and a balance in that discussion. And the last part about maintaining control of a discussion, most discussions don't have control. When there's someone there who can guide that discussion, that conversation goes in places that you would have never expected because you actually have a start 
and a, and a finish. Most discussions end in a very weird way because people don't know how to just say, "Oh, well, it sounds like we covered that topic." If there's nothing else to say, let's all get going. Everyone ends the discussion with, "Oh, hey, it's getting late. I got to get going now." But what if you could end that discussion earlier and start a new one so that you can spend your time more wisely? And then the last point, and then we'll open up for some more discussion here, is that everyone has something to say. Only a few people have something that's worth saying. Find the value behind your words. Say what you mean, and mean what you say. Too many people are into social media. Where you feel like you can put something out into the ether, and it doesn't matter anymore. But in reality, if you actually approached everything from that perspective, that you're going to say what you mean and actually mean what you just said, you'll find audiences who respect you for being you, and who actually want to hear more about the things that you're doing and have that open conversation with you. So that's my mini lesson about speaking with clarity. Is there anything else you wanted to cover, Mike? Yeah. So、uh, there's a couple things that, as we move throughout the conversation, that I just wanted to touch back on because I, I think there are things I'm curious to get your take on as well. So the one thing that we haven't talked a lot about are the people who we're having conversations with that are bulldozer. Conversationalists, where they are just not interested in anything that you're saying, and will sometimes interrupt you, like blatantly interrupt you in your mid thought, or they will not. They don't care about silence, and it doesn't matter what. There, there is no silence. That, that, that's that's a waste of time or space or whatever you want to call it. And I want to get your take on how you personally. Work with that kind of conversation, or avoid it, or I don't know what your take is, but I'm interested to even just understand how you deal with that kind of conversation. Yeah, I, I think of of those conversationalists as the people who, if you ever watch the football movie, because I, I don't play football, but I know that there are a lot of motivational movies and inspiring ones where you see this person training on a football field where they have to run as fast as they could and push this this、uh, this heavy. Object as far across the field as they can, and eventually that object slows them down and they stop. And when I think about those bulldozer conversationalists, I see myself as the the thing that lets has to let them keep running, but guide them so that eventually they fall into this controlled environment of speaking. And what I mean by that is, you'll have people who just keep speaking, 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 and cut you off and speak over you. And I've had that happen too. And generally, when they when they have to take a pause to breathe, I ask them, "Hey, are you finished yet? Hey, are you finished yet? Is that the last thing you want to say? Hey, is is there anything else?" Eventually, they realize that they just said so much that they don't actually know what they just said. And if you ask them to repeat it, now they know that they have to be a little more careful with what they're saying. And in that moment, when you start speaking and they cut you off. That's where I cut them off, and I just let them know respectfully. Hey, can I finish my thought? Hey, do you mind if I finish my sentence? Hey, you had your turn to speak. Can I have mine? And when you ask things like that, you'll find that more people 
are inclined to slow down because they're the people who are speaking from this place within them where the filter between their brain and their mouth has shut off and it's just their brain and they're trying to say everything that they have to say. There are also going to be conversationalists who don't stop talking. And that's where my only advice is learn to pick and choose your own battle. Because if I were in a room with a person who wouldn't stop speaking, I would walk out. And I've done that before. And in that moment, the reason why I walk out is because everyone has one thing in common. That the one thing we all can never get back is time. And if I'm wasting my time, it's not worth wasting. And I leave. I do it in executive meetings. I do it in places where it just, my time doesn't matter there. And I leave because it's not worth that trade off, especially because the emotional attachment to a conversation can oftentimes be high. So if I'm in a place where someone's not making space for others, then there's no reason for me to be in that space. And if I'm not in a place with someone who's speaking respectfully, and can't have a good discourse about something, then that's not a place that I want to be either. So pick and choose your battles. Give someone the benefit of the doubt and try. And if it doesn't work, then that's not a battle worth having. And just walk away because that's the only way you're going to win. So, As a follow-up to that, is that how you deal with... So for context, before I even say what I was about to say, the internet is full of trolls and people who are extremely opinionated about insert topic here. It could be political. It could be anything, right? And, or it could be just about a simple topic and they're so passionate about it to the point where it's almost uh, insulting, right? Do you work through conversations in the same way where if it's somebody is not respecting the conversation or you, you just leave? Is that a similar way to maybe deal with those kinds of conversations? Yeah, because at the end of the day, even with trolls, it's the same concept that they came in with an intent to do something. And the intention that they have is a negative one, one that they are trying to win in their eyes by getting an emotional response from you because it's in those moments where we say the things that can really hurt us because we're not thinking clearly. We're just trying to say something that gets back at that person. And when you're in a position where the conversation is about winning or losing, and it's someone who is there to pester you. And the, and this is another one in the design world, right? This is something that you kind of touched on earlier with this idea of feeling as if you have to be this pompous designer who is like bigger than other people and you know everything and you're this person who uh, is kind of like, oh, I only eat filet mignon dinners or whatever it is. Like the people who are so big in their heads that they oftentimes forget about other people. It's, it's like those moments where for those kinds of people, if you're around them, they're only there to be the devil's advocate. And I, I know a lot of designers and creative people who always want to be the devil's advocate. They're always the one saying, 
well, yeah, I agree with your ideas and so on and so forth. But have you considered this? I mean, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Have you, what about this? What if, what if the world ended? There wouldn't be a need for buildings, right? Like things like that. And you're, you're in this discussion, like I'm, I'm so confused. I don't know what's going on. So when you're in a place where people are coming to the table, saying things that they don't mean because they're just trying to elicit an emotional response from you, the way that you can win in this win or lose battle is to walk away. Because what people are looking for from you is that you're going to waste your time responding. And if you walk away, you've won that battle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I think walking away is actually a very difficult thing to do. I believe you that you've walked away from conversations because you 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 I know you well enough that that seems like very much something that you do. I don't think that personally that's not something that I could easily do and I think that a lot of people struggle with being that I want to say blunt. I want to say being that respectful of themselves, right? So cherishing the the time that we have individually in this life on earth, however you want to describe it, you know, there, there is that trade-off. I think that's a really good way to, to think about it is there is always some kind of payment that you're making. And do you really want to be making that payment towards a conversation that is either going absolutely nowhere or that is bringing you down or what have you? I think that's really a, a kind of a, an interesting way of thinking about it. The one thing that I'm curious, because we haven't referenced a lot of specific references that people can go to, but I know that you're learning from all different kinds of speakers, all different kinds of people in that we listen to or that we kind of get this conversational um, experience from. Are there people that you might direct the audience to? to you know, Because the one thing you've talked about is having personal conversations themselves, right? But are there examples of other people that you listen to or that you learn from that could be examples for other people to go listen to conversations as well? Yeah. And I think that's a good point to end the, this uh, this episode on because it was one of the points that I think can, can help people who are looking for resources and guides. The first that I'm going to talk about are speakers that you can listen to and actually just pay really close attention to how they do what they do. The first is a friend of mine, Matthew Encina, who was the former creative director at Blind and the chief content officer at The Future. When you watch any of his YouTube videos on his personal YouTube channel, and you listen to how he speaks in those videos, it's very clear, but it all starts with a hook, gets you in, tells you clearly what you're about to learn, And just the way he talks about something guides you through a story. The second person for conversations is Chris Doe. When you listen to Chris Doe from the future, and he was the CEO and owner at Blind, the way that he speaks and the way that he clearly articulates himself is something that takes so much time to do. But if you watch how he does it and you watch how he has conversations with other people, you'll start to pick up on the ideas of finding comfort in your silence, clearly articulating yourself, and having a position for what you're about to say. And then for resources, the first one that I would recommend is a book that'll teach you about 
learning more about being curious of other people and other people's interests. It's how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. That's a really good one because he really touches on some key points and it's an easy read. I wouldn't say follow it down to the letter, but it's just something to give you a general sense of what conversations can really be about to get to the meat of someone's life and understand them. The reason why I'm, I'm saying you don't have to follow the book down to a letter is because that book, in my perspective, is formulated in a way for you to get as much information about someone else's likes and beliefs and use it against them without them knowing. It's kind of manipulative in that way. And I don't think that the art of communication is about manipulating all the time. I think it's about trying to come out at the other end, feeling as if you and the other person gain so much from it. And so that leads me to the last resource, which is Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference, and his masterclass on masterclass.com, Never Split the Difference, where he teaches you the art of negotiation, because he will show you ways of conversation through negotiation and his tactics where you will actually pick up on little tips and tricks, things that we often do as great conversationalists that people don't actually think about. But when you can articulate it and talk about it, you'll be able to do it a lot better. An example that of something he teaches is this idea of mirroring. When you're in a conversation with someone and you're mirroring something, you essentially are restating what someone said to you back to them and asking them the question again. And you do this in a way where people start to see, oh, you know, they're really listening. Let me give them more information. It helps build that trust. So in a way, his is similar to Dale Carnegie's book where, yes, he's teaching you how to manipulate people because for him, he's teaching you FBI negotiation tactics for resolving a big situation. But if you see how he does it and you start applying it to a normal situation where you're having a conversation and discussion, you'll start to pick up on the key points and the things that actually help you get more information so that you can solve a problem as a creative person and as a designer, which is the ultimate goal of what we do for our profession. Yeah, I, I love those as resources. I think we've talked a little bit about never split the difference before. I've never actually read that, but how to win friends and influence people. So I, as a trick here, I, I like collect these lists of books that I want to read. Right. And as you were talking to him, I, I went and I added it to my Amazon list. Uh, and as I went there, it's funny because it directly added uh, as a suggestion, how to win friends and influence people as well <laughs> as, as something that's uh, sort of a corollary. I would agree that I think that how to win friends and influence people is a bit manipulative, but it does have these very interesting and universal sort of qualities to the way that the lessons are presented. There's storytelling, it's engaging, and there's always this very brief but very powerful nugget of truth behind whatever that story is trying to tell you. And personally, I would recommend getting the audiobook because it it sounds like somebody from 1950 is is recording it and there's all this like interesting music. That's a, just an aside. It's kind of a nerdy thing, but um I really liked the the two people that you suggested also as resources, knowing 
uh, sort of where Matthew and Chris are coming from and the kind of content that they're trying to put out into the world. I think there's a, uh, a great sense of self that they present to the world and that they share with the world and they know how to hold these conversations because they're not just trying to share ideas, but they're trying to understand people as they talk to those people. And they're trying to really dig deep like you do to have those conversations, understand it and then process it and then help more people. So I think that those are two really great examples. The one person that I would also add that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and just in general would be Simon Sinek. I think Simon in particular has very straightforward interesting conversations and even his YouTube videos as an example are sometimes four minutes, three minutes, but they're very well thought of sort of constructed ideas. And the way that he talks is very similar to the people that you've mentioned and even yourself, Tim, where I never get the sense that if he doesn't understand an idea that he'll just riff on it forever. And I think that's an important quality to what we're talking about and taking the, even going back to some of the lessons that we've talked about to your younger self, having those moments of silence, knowing when to say that you don't understand something, I think is a really powerful thing to, to restructure, reframe the conversation and just being comfortable with the ideas that you have and only really talking when you have something powerful to say or something of substance to say that that is valuable, not just regurgitating what other people are saying, I think is really important. So I love the resources that you had here today and uh, happy that we had this conversation. Yeah. And to close out this episode, I just wanted to quickly go through the mini lessons one last time. The first thing that we talked about for speaking clearly, which is the lesson I would teach my, my younger self uh, it was to get rid of the filler words in your sentences, the uhs, the ums, sort of, kind of, all of that stuff. Get rid of it. The second thing was finding comfort in your silence. That's the hardest thing for most people to learn because a lot of people can't deal with silence. The third one was practice speaking with other people in different situations, whether it's the person right next to you at home your closest friends, your family, people at work, strangers, whoever it might be, practice. And if you want a good tool for it, look up an app called Clubhouse. Other places are now creating similar apps that are audio-based and you can join discussions and just be part of it. That's where I learned how to speak better because I got to practice on different stages. The next one, the next two are actually more about these ideas I would have left myself with. And the first one was, Clear communication is one of the toughest skills to learn, but it's actually the most valuable. Being able to articulate your ideas, de-escalate issues when people are upset, and maintain control of a discussion is going to help you exponentially in your life and your career. So learn how to communicate clearly. And the last one was that everyone has something to say. Only a few people have something worth saying. So find the value behind your words. Say what you mean and mean what you say. And with that, that's the end of this second lesson that we would have taught our younger selves. So make sure you join us again next time where Mike is going to be talking about the practice and how it matters more than the result. And until then, we 
Can't wait to see you guys next time. Thanks, everybody. See ya. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unpacking Design. Check us out anytime at unpackingdesign.com. And you can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Please remember to leave a review and share this podcast with someone you know. Mm -hmm.